The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We welcome you here to the nave of Marsh Chapel, whether you are here present among us in the nave at 735 Commonwealth Avenue or listening live over radio signals at WBUR 90.9 FM or listening around the globe on the internet at WBUR.org. My name is Brother Larry Whitney. I have the privilege of serving as university chaplain for community life here at Marsh Chapel. I bear greetings this morning on behalf of our dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, who is away in the summer months. His departure means that we must, of course, be beginning our annual National Summer Preacher Series, and so we are. We welcome to the pulpit this morning the Reverend David Romanick, who is returning to Marsh Chapel this summer. Uh, after having earned a bachelor's degree here at Boston University in American Studies, graduating in 2007, and then he served for a year here as chapel associate for first-year students. He subsequently attended Virginia Theological Seminary and served as curate and associate rector of the Church of the Heavenly Rest in Abilene, Texas. He currently serves as associate rector of the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. He met his wife, Sarah Beth, while they were singing right here in the Marsh Chapel Choir. Welcome this morning to Sarah Beth and their daughter, Cecilia Alice. Welcome, David. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, 
You have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Grant us so to be joined together in unity of spirit by their teaching, that we may be made a holy temple acceptable to you, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Dear friends, as we gather this Sunday morning, we gather out of a broken world. We continue to remember the nine lives lost in Charleston, South Carolina, just over a week ago. Some have been laid to rest, and some will be laid to rest early this week. We remember the dozens who died in three terrorist attacks just at the end of this past week. Indeed, we live in a broken world. We pray this morning for our own brokenness, our contributions to the brokenness of our world. We pray for grace and healing. Dearly beloved, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from St. Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 7 through 15. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter, I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you. But it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Please join me in reading verses from Psalm 130 with the Antiphon. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for twelve years. She had endured much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say, who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, 
Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I do not say this by way of command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Please be seated. Before I begin, I want to bring you greetings from the uh, Episcopal Diocese of Pennsylvania, the clergy and people there, and specifically the Church of the Redeemer in Bryn Mawr, where I serve. And I'd also like to thank uh, Dean Hill for his invitation to preach today and to thank uh, Brittany and Larry and Justin and the staff of Marsh Chapel for their hospitality. And I'd also like to say what a pleasure it is to be back here. Um, 
Ten years ago is when I arrived for the first time, and a lot has happened since then. I've married the woman who I met sitting right there, and uh, we got married standing right there, and now I have a baby in the back who is pointing at me right now. So it's a real delight to be back here where the head of the Charles meets the heart of the country. In 1935, Thomas P. O'Neill, the legendary Massachusetts politician and speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, ran for a seat on the city council across the river in Cambridge. And in what was to be the only electoral defeat of his long political career, O'Neill lost the race by 228 votes. Though Tip was understandably disappointed, he derived two important lessons from the experience of losing that city council race. One came from his father, a local legend in his own right, who advised Tip that he hadn't spent enough time campaigning in his own district. All politics is local, he counseled, with a phrase that was to become O'Neill's trademark. The other lesson came from Mrs. Elizabeth O'Brien, a neighbor whom Tip had known since childhood. On election day, Mrs. O'Brien somewhat haughtily told her young neighbor, Tom, I'm going to vote for you even though you didn't ask me. O'Neill was taken aback. Mrs. O'Brien, he protested, I've lived across the street from you for 18 years. I cut your grass in the summer. I shovel your walk in the winter. I didn't think I had to ask for your vote. Tom, let me tell you something, Mrs. O'Brien replied. People like to be asked. Tip got a lot of mileage out of this story. Apparently, when O'Neill became majority whip in Congress, Congress, Hale Boggs of Louisiana heard the Mrs. O'Brien story so frequently that he would roll his eyes at the first hint of its coming. But even though it became a cliché, This story reveals an important truth, not only about politics, but about the human condition. No matter how earnest and talented we may be, it is our participation in the community that is most important. While assumptions and good intentions have their place, There is no substitute for reaching outside of ourselves and remembering that people like to be asked. This morning we hear two passages from scripture that I think would have met with Mrs. O'Brien's approval. The first is from 2 Corinthians. As you probably remember, we've been reading through this letter for the last several weeks. And 2 Corinthians has some of Paul's most eloquent language, from if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation, see the old has passed away, everything has become new, or we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and see we are alive. It's really great stuff. In the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul is firing on all cylinders. He's affirming the power of the resurrection and the endurance of the Christian community. But today, Paul shifts gears a little bit, and he begins to address some more practical concerns, namely fundraising. You see, apart from proclaiming the gospel, the primary objective of Paul's ministry is to raise money for the church in Jerusalem. It's one of the few directives he received from the other apostles, and he takes the responsibility very, very seriously. As such, almost every Pauline letter has at least some reference to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, either thanking the community for its support or encouraging them to open their pocketbooks. And 2 Corinthians falls in the latter category. Paul tells the Corinthians how impressed he is with their enthusiasm for the the gospel and the work of the church. And then he explains that their zeal ought to be matched by material support. 
It's appropriate for you who began last year to desire to do something, he writes. Now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. Sounds an awful like, a lot like an NPR pledge drive, doesn't it? But Paul is not simply asking for money. Notice the way he frames his request. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for her sake, your sakes he became poor, so that his, by his poverty you might become rich. Paul is not encouraging a mere redistribution of resources. He is framing financial generosity as he frames everything else within the context of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Paul, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's love. It's the affirmation that God's love truly bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, even death. And it is the resurrection that Paul has in mind when he says, I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. Far from simply soliciting a contribution to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, Paul is suggesting that the Corinthians' financial gift makes a profound statement about the way they see the world. Yes, Paul is asking them to put their money where their mouth is, but he is also drawing a subtle but crucial distinction between earnestness and genuineness between the desire to help and the will to help, between assuming and asking. Just as God's love was revealed to be genuine in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul implies that our love is revealed to be genuine when we reach outside of ourselves. And this is also the implication of today's gospel reading. This passage from Mark's gospel is a great example of an intercalation known more colloquially as a Markin sandwich. A Markin sandwich is composed of two stories. When read together, they reveal a larger truth. And in in this case, the filling for the sandwich is this story about the hemorrhaging woman, while the bread is the story about Jairus' daughter. The similarities between these stories are obvious. Both depict women who have their health restored. Both feature the number 12 prominently, probably a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, and both celebrate the power of faith. But the most interesting similarity between these two stories is that they depict people reaching outside of themselves across social boundaries. Jairus is a leader of the synagogue. He comes from a caste that naturally distrusts Jesus and other upstarts. But Jairus reaches out to Jesus in spite of the social implications. Moreover, Mark uses the imperfect tense to describe this interaction. He indicates that Jairus kept asking Jesus, repeatedly violating those social norms on behalf of his sick daughter. The hemorrhaging woman crosses an even more formidable boundary than Jairus. Not only is she a woman reaching out to a man in a patriarchal culture, her condition renders her unclean according to the Jewish law. By reaching out to Jesus, she violates not only social convention, but the law of Moses itself. Nevertheless, she reaches out to Jesus, aware that her earnestness will only take her so far. Both Jairus and the woman that Jesus heals understand that love is only revealed to be genuine when we reach outside of ourselves. 
With this intercalation, Mark illustrates the subtle but crucial distinction between earnestness and genuineness, between desire and will, between assuming and asking. Those of you who have spent any amount of time in the church know that it tends to be a hotbed of earnestness. When faced with an issue, our impulse is to create a committee to discuss it and to conceive of possible solutions, all while assuming that we know best. Then, if we fail or we don't achieve the desired result, we are inclined to give up, saying something to the effect of, well, at least we tried. Earnestness has an incredibly short shelf life. It is suited to the quick fix, to the cause celeb, to the armchair activist, to the easy answer. But the gospel does not call us to earnestness. It calls us to genuine love. Genuine love asks us to reach outside of ourselves. It asks us to violate social conventions. It asks us to acknowledge that we do not have all the answers. And even when our efforts at communication and bridge building fail, genuine love asks that we, like Jairus, keep asking. Keep striving to be in relationship. Keep forging the bonds of affection that build up the body of Christ. Keep rising from the dead, in the words of Fred Pat Green. Above all, genuine love asks us to recognize first what we share in common with the people around us. While earnestness demands that we see the world as a collection of causes, genuine love invites us to see the people of this world as sisters and brothers, as members of the same body, as those for whom Christ died. Ten days ago, this country was appalled angered and saddened to hear about the murder of nine black Christians at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Everything about this terrorist act was horrifying. The fact that it took place in a house of worship, the fact that the murderer exploited the hospitality of those he murdered, the fact that he left someone alive to repeat his hateful message. Naturally, people from every walk of life have expressed their outrage at this atrocity. They have clamored for the removal of the Confederate battle flag from public buildings and for a dramatic reevaluation of our gun laws. And there's no question that these are necessary steps to take. Symbols of bygone rebellions have no place in the halls of government, and our nation must examine its idolatrous preoccupation with firearms. But ultimately, these steps are symbolic. The problems that led to this massacre will not be solved when the stars and bars are taken down from outside the South Carolina State House, nor will they disappear when it is harder to purchase a deadly weapon. For all of our earnest desire to do something in the wake of this tragedy, we must adopt a perspective of genuine love, recognizing that the sin of racism cannot be undone through symbolic or legislative acts. Genuine love requires us to reach outside of ourselves across the walls that separate us. It requires that we be willing to ask our sisters and brothers about their experience of the world, recognizing that their answers may make us uncomfortable. All the while, we must trust in the God who is reconciling all things to himself through the death 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In short, our response to the tragedy in Charleston requires us to recognize the crucial distinction between earnestness and genuineness, between desire and will, between assuming and asking. Earnestness assumes that systemic racism is confined to one part of the country. Genuine love recognizes that all of us are complicit in a racist system of oppression. Earnestness looks for quick fixes. Genuine love recognizes that the problems we face do not have easy answers. Earnestness is a solitary endeavor. Genuine love works towards Dr. King's dream of the beloved community. Earnestness says somebody ought to do something about this. Genuine love wonders if that someone might be me. Most importantly, earnestness tells us to give up every time we fall short. But genuine love encourages us to keep asking, to keep striving, to keep working, to keep trusting that the walls that separate us can and will be dismantled because God has renewed creation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are called to be more than earnest and well-intentioned. We are called to be genuine. We are called to build up the beloved community. We are called to ask our sisters and brothers to share in the new creation. And we are called to reach outside of ourselves in genuine and reconciling love. To pray is an act of sacred vulnerability. We come to a time in worship each week when we gather as a community of prayer. I invite you to open up your hearts and spirits to prayer by adopting whatever position is most comfortable for you, be that sitting, standing, or kneeling at the altar rail. Let us join in singing our call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord. offer up petitions of prayer and conclude with God of love and mercy. Please respond with hear our prayer. Gracious and mighty God, we come to you seeing the needs of a broken and bleeding world. We see terror in our neighboring countries striking innocent people in Tunisia, France, and Kuwait. We see natural disasters like floods in India sweeping away homes and families. We see the deep grief and sorrow of Charleston, South Carolina. We see corruption, racism, injustice, poverty, 
mass incarceration, and illness. Help us, O God, to lean on each other and lean on you in these times of trial and strife. May you be the light on our path and our strength and shield. God of love and mercy, hear our prayer. We come to you seeing the joys of justice, peace, and compassion in our world. We see neighbors help each other in times of struggle. We see our nation courageously empowering equal marriage for all. We see our president singing and speaking gospel words. We see children running through the summer grass with smiles on their face. We see compassion, peace, joy, relaxation, togetherness, and hope every day. Help us, O God, remember you in those moments and spread your steadfast love through the best and worst parts of our lives. May you be the great joy in our hearts and the laughter on our faces. God of love and mercy, hear our prayer. We come to you with our own needs this morning. We pray for those we know who are ill, imprisoned, and suffering. We pray for our friends and family who we miss, are estranged, or have lost touch with. We pray for our nation with its many struggles and conflicts. We pray for our world and its tragedies. We pray for ourselves in our loneliness, listlessness, and senses of loss. Help us, O oh God, find courage in the darkness, love in the face of hatred, and your presence among us when we feel the most alone. May you be our constant friend and our greatest partner. God of love and mercy, hear our prayer. God, you are both mother and father to us, the caregiver of all. Let us pray as your son has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. peace of the Lord be always with you. Once again, my name is Brother Larry Whitney, and I have the privilege of serving as university chaplain for community life here at Marsh Chapel. In following the maxim of Tip O'Neill, I ask you to participate this morning in our ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew and passing that book along to your neighbor so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. Our word of the day here at Marsh Chapel is vocation. We celebrate vocation not only with the return of the Reverend David Romanick, whose 
own vocation was fostered and nurtured, as you heard here right here at Marsh Chapel. We also celebrate this vocation this morning in continuing to celebrate the Reverend Brittany Longstorff and her two years of ministry here at Marsh Chapel and her call to serve as Director of Religious and Spiritual Life at Bates College beginning in mid-July. We also celebrate the vocation and call of Miss Jessica Chica, who will take up the role of University Chaplain for International Students ad interim beginning August 1st, uh, along with her ongoing work embodying Lutheran ministry on our campus. And particularly this morning, we are very pleased to recognize the vocation and ordination of the Reverend Soren Hessler and the Reverend Jennifer Quigley as elders in the United Methodist Church. Please join me in celebrating one and all. Next Sunday, July 5th, the first Sunday of the month, is a Communion Sunday, and we hope to see you here then. Our National Summer Preacher Series continues as well with yours truly in the pulpit. In spite of this, we are working to entice you to join us by uh, hosting our annual Independence Day weekend barbecue following the service. Do come for food and fellowship. As the ushers wait upon us for the morning offering, we invite you to meditate upon Heinrich Schutz's setting, Zovari hin zu Jesu Christ. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
gracious and loving God, receive these gifts for your service as we are called to live into a world where the ones who have much do not have too much, and the ones who have little do not have too little. May your spirit grant us the genuine love to live into this vision and the perseverance to see it fulfilled. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. May the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead empower you to go forth into the world in genuine love. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.